Ocean Bites Out Loud is a podcast that brings the latest news in ocean science straight to you. Our goal is to summarize the most recent scientific articles for your listening pleasure, and to talk to up-and-coming ocean scientists who have new and interesting ideas to share with the world. We hope you enjoy and learn a little something along the way. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Ocean Bites Out Loud. My name's Ashley, your host. This week, we have something really special for you. It's the beginning of what I like to call the Kelpisode. Now, over the next couple of weeks, I'll be releasing a couple more parts of the Kelpisode. But what you need to know is that this is the beginning of a wonderful journey into the world of kelp. Over the summer, I've talked to a couple of researchers who have been working on kelp ecosystems around BC, and I am so excited to share a lot of the conversations that I've had with them, with you, the listeners. These are just a couple of the scientists who are currently working on kelp ecosystems, but there are many more here at UVic, and maybe in the future I'll get to talk to them. But I wanted to give you an introduction to these wonderful ecosystems that we have here. And to get us started off, for the first part of the kelp episode, I talked to a couple of members of the Spectral Remote Sensing Lab here at UVic to get an inside peek on how satellites are actually helping us to conserve kelp ecosystems. Take a listen. Listeners, welcome back to the Kelpisode. Today with us, we have three wonderful scientists who I am so excited to talk to today. So for our listeners, can you please tell us your names and your preferred pronouns? Hi, my name is Alejandra Mora. I am a geographer, a doctor in geography, and I work with kelp forests at the Spectral Lab at UVic. Hi, my name is Lauren. I'm a master's student also in geography, uh, mapping kelp forests. I use she, they pronouns. Uh, hello, I'm Romina Barbosa. I am postdoc um, at the Spectral Lab and a biologist and focusing more in ecology. Wonderful. Thank you so much for being here. I'm super, super excited. So now let's start off and talk about what you're currently researching. Yeah, so our research is uh, kelp forest in general, but more specifically looking at the floating kelp beds and also all the drivers that are related with uh, the extension or the area and the changes of these floating kelp canopies. So in order to do that, we monitor the kelp forest from space with satellite images, uh, also with very high resolution images and uh, including drones and, and also compare these uh, areas with other distributions of other uh, environmental variables, such as uh, temperatures, uh, winds, currents, and so on. I also map kelp forests uh, from satellites, similar to Alejandra, but um, other than satellite imagery, I also look at drone imagery and some underwater data. And um, my study region is the Bratzen Archipelago, um, in, which are on Kwakwaka'wakw territories, and we work with um, the indigenous-led f- Broughton Aquaculture Transition Initiative um, to basically assess how resilient or not resilient kelp forests in the area are to um, environmental changes as well as biotic changes. Yeah, I'm working the same project that uh, Lauren. 
in there's a project of kelp in the Burton area, and I'm focusing more in the um, in looking at which are the drivers of the distribution of the kelp in the area, and also the drivers of dynamic uh, through time, and to evaluate the, uh, where are the areas where we can have like more resilient, as Lauren said, and and look at you know, the future for recovery or try to help the salmon to recover in this area. Wow, that is incredible. So now I'm curious, I want to hear a little bit more about this. So you said we can actually monitor kelp from space using satellite imagery. I had no idea about this. (laughs) So can you tell me a little bit more about what it looks like to, I guess, go through these satellite images and then, you know, try and tie them to the drivers that you mentioned that might be affecting kelp? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So when you are looking from the shore and you see all those floating canopies, uh, you may wonder that uh, maybe they could be invisible to the naked eye, but uh, they actually are very much visible when you are looking from from above. Uh, they are very clearly clearly coming up to the surface year after the year. Uh, I'm talking about bull kelp and the giant kelp, so which are the main uh, species that are distributed here in the British Columbia. There are other kelp species, but uh, most of them are not reaching the surface, so it's very hard to detect them from space. Um, the main characteristic is that uh, as any other vegetation, uh, it reflects a lot in the near-infrared area of the spectrum, of the electromagnetic spectrum. I They don't reflect too much in the red area of the electromagnetic spectrum. In any remote sensing of vegetation, um, what we usually do is to see what is the difference between the red and the infrared and separate the signal from the rest of the water, which is uh, is basically blue. And with that, we have a difference that we can say that this is the area of the kelp forest. Yeah, thank you for that. I mean, you know, technology is really amazing. I think in ways that, you know, we didn't expect things are possible now that weren't possible a couple of years ago. So it's really awesome to see that, you know, we're making use of this technology in order to conserve, you know, these kelp ecosystems. Can you tell me a little bit more about the study area that you work in? I know that you work in a couple of different areas, so maybe each of you can talk a little bit about what's going on with the kelp in those areas. Sure. So uh, my my project is about the um, the southern part of Vancouver Island and the Gulf Islands that are surrounded by the the Strait of Juan de Fuca and the Strait of Fioria. These areas uh, they behave differently. So in some areas that are more exposed to the main currents of the Strait of Juan de Fuca, the kelp forests have been persistent, and I mean by persistent or stable because uh, the the canopies are fluctuating but not. For, uh, decreasing despite all the environmental changes such as El Niño or the warming of the temperatures, they are still like remaining more or less in the same places and with the fluctuations, uh, they are not having like a significant trend. So um, 
Uh, this is not the same as any other, other parts in the north of the Sturry area. So in the Gulf Islands is in areas such as uh, the north of Salt Spring, the north of um, near Gabriola, near uh, Galliano Islands. And those areas are kind of disappearing. And if you if you compare the the, the first nautical records in which the kelp was um, uh, drawn there, like as thick and important kelp canopies, they are long gone and we don't know when they started to disappear. So I am in that stage of my project trying to monitor that. And well, uh, my colleagues are working in the northern part of Vancouver Island in the Broughton Archipelago. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Romina and I work in the Broughton Archipelago, as Alejandra said. If you look at a map, it's basically this cluster of islands and inlets between the island, Vancouver Island itself, and the mainland. I guess I'll talk a little bit about the context of which, why we are working there. I can't speak for the initiative itself, but we are working, this is uh, part of the Broughton Aquaculture Transition Initiative, which is formed by the Mamalilikula, Namgis, and Kwikwasutunu Huamish First Nations. And um, it's under a broader program that aims to bring back wild salmon runs after decades of degradation under industrial aquaculture and fish farms. And since we're kelp people mainly, um, so uh, we're doing the kelp part of the program and this links back to the wild salmon because uh, there have been studies showing that kelp is very useful as juvenile salmon habitat as they migrate out into the ocean. But primarily our kelp part of it is, or at least my part of it, is to see how it varies through space and time and these things are quite complex to entangle and we're still at the start of the project. But one thing we did notice is that um, in the more open ocean parts, the kelp beds are larger, they're denser and easier to see from space. Whereas in the inlets, uh, where, where it ex uh, experiences a lot of freshwater runoff from glacial meltwater and all those fun things, uh, the kelp beds there are very small or sometimes there's just less or ju there's just no kelp in some of those places. And at this point, we don't know like if it's just an environmental gradient or if it's something that has changed in recent years. It will be a lot of figuring out whether um, there are changes through time in these places or this is just their natural distribution, regardless of temporal change. And one thing I can say about the temporal component, though, is that on one of the larger islands in the more exposed areas of the archipelago, where there is a very, very big uh, macrocystis or giant kelp kelp bed. Um, it's both a giant bed and a giant kelp bed, as in the species. <laughs> um, and that one, at least from a very preliminary analysis, has changed in size throughout the years, along with variables like El Nino, which brings warmer seawaters, as Alejandra mentioned, and La Nina, which has colder waters. So generally, while there's colder waters, the bed is bigger, and when it's warmer, the bed is smaller, but it seems to rebound after periods of hot water. So at least from a very preliminary analysis, it seems quite resilient, but there's definitely more analyses to be done. Yeah, I will probably would like to complement a bit about the project, um, because the kelp program in the Bruton is like everything has started with dialogue from the party, like the Bruton Agricultural Transition Initiative with members of the Kelp Rescue Initiative, uh, Kelp Rescue Initiative, and the Spectral Lab, um, 
and they came together also with Salmon Coast Field Station. Uh, so the project is like as a partnership between these all institutions mm -hmm. and also projects like the Kelp Resilience uh, from the Spectral Lab. And it's also supported with fundings from the DFO. And yeah, we are all working on trying to monitor and to because we're already we don't know how the kelp is doing. There are some previous like observations from members of the crew of Paddy that they uh, they monitor it and they see some decrease in some areas and decreasing density and coverage. So we are starting from this baseline information and we want to answer this like how is the kelp doing? And um, if it's important for the salmon migration, so we're going to also be surveying the, kelp, uh, the salmon in the kelp um, with the purpose of trying to help the salmon to recover. So this this is all extremely interesting. And as you said, it has huge implications for the future of salmon. So what would be maybe a couple of outcomes other than just baseline monitoring that you would hope to provide to both your partners that you're working with, and possibly some First Nations communities. I will just give a bit more context on the site selection in the Bratton Archipelago because it links back to um, what potential outcomes they have. So a lot of the sites that were chosen were former fish farms so, or, or fish farms that will be decommissioned soon. So I think it would be interesting to see if there's any link with kelp resilience and the presence of um very more industrial scale fish farms. But ultimately what the initiative and what the First Nations do is, you know, I can't speak for them, obviously. And we're hoping that our information can inform their own marine spatial planning purposes. So however they decide to manage their um, marine areas, some um, context on how kelp has been changing would be helpful. And they already have a lot more like anecdotal and lived like knowledge of that area as well. So I think this is just like another form of knowledge to complement their own current knowledge. Yeah, I think that this work that we are doing together is just to learn uh, from one from each other and also to um, develop like protocols to be able to monitor and they will continue monitoring this and it's a very heterogeneous area so it's like many factors to be taken in account like from the water conditions and and I think that one of the outputs is this too like how the best strategies to to look at these environments and monitor and and be alert to some changes that can indicate uh, particular processes or particular declines or how healthy they are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, let me also include something else. The work that we are doing as a spectral lab is something that stands out as a, as a different kind of research that uh, compared to all the work that has been done in other areas of uh, the uh, western side of the Pacific Ocean, northwestern western side of the Pacific Ocean, because uh, in the past or uh, those works uh, were mainly focused on the giant kelps that are in the coast of uh, the states from California to Oregon and Washington. But uh, the area of where the kelps are here in 
in British Columbia. Uh, it is uh, surrounded by uh, these inner seas, uh, the complexity of the islands and the channels, uh, the kelpets are quite smaller. So uh, this required a lot of different approaches. And this is a part of an ongoing process of learning of all together, how to increase uh, the knowledge driven by these medium resolution satellite images to very high resolution images to drone images. And then looking at diversity of the coastline, trying to find different, how to classify the gradients of the geographical coastline and also trying to um, develop new tools just to see the trends. Just because, uh, as I mentioned before, the, the canopy of the kelp fluctuates so much, it's very hard to draw conclusions for a couple of years. You need like a really really long time series to get some conclusions. And that's the challenge that we're facing because it's so hard to get data year after year from this area of the world. So um, I think that all the methodologies that we are developing here will inform other areas. I am also from Chile uh, in southern Patagonia. The kelp beds are kind of similar. So I think that uh, the knowledge that is gathered here will help in other areas like such as Patagonia as well. That is a really wonderful point. I mean, I think in you know all aspects of science, having these different methodologies, getting as much information as possible, and then combining that for you know monitoring these at-risk ecosystems in the face of climate change. So I guess my next question is, if current trends continue with warming and with our climate, you know, seeing more extreme heat waves and that kind of thing, what might the future of kelp look like in the areas that you're studying? Yeah, so I could say that in these uh, warming trends, there are different outcomes of kelp forest depending where they are located. So in the areas that are in areas of low energy, low currents, uh, they definitely will feel more stressed and will decay more easily in, than in areas that are more exposed to the main currents. Uh, just because... They just like the currents, no? And also with this can also be related with the flow of nutrients and cold waters. And these factors are excellent, uh, resilient factors for, for kelp ecosystems in general. Yeah, it is very um, geography related, this kind of answers. So in, in a short, in a, as a short answer, more exposed areas will behave better and will be more resilient to the warming effect of the ocean than more enclosed, uh, more sheltered. This also has a lot of uh, management implications. If you want to restore or conserve kelp forests, you have to be aware of that. I think, uh, Alejandro, you made a great point, and I want to expand on the importance mm -hmm. of um, geography when you know defining how kelp is doing. Because um, ultimately, it's very variable. And, yes, um, <laughs> so, so yeah, <laughs> exactly. And like uh, the exposed versus less exposed dichotomy is a good generalization. But ultimately, um, I know this is a podcast, but there's this map and <laughs> use in our presentations yeah. that shows like all the different studies that we know of in BC talking about kelp change. And like all of the dots are there. There's sites with loss, sites with decreased, sites with stable sites with increase in kelp. So all of the possibilities, all types of trends are possible uh, throughout BC just um, based on 
environmental conditions and body mm. conditions. So I think it really emphasizes the need of a very local scale study to truly define the state of kelp in an area because you can't say, oh, in like um, 500 kilometers away, the kelp is decreasing. Thus, that's what happening. That's what's happening here. You can't really say that just because things are so variable and different. And I think this is the type of message that doesn't often get translated to more popular media. I think scientists are really hesitant to draw like very, very clear conclusions sometimes because we're always like, oh, it depends. And and, and in this case, it really does depend. So I don't think there's like a doom story or, or a hope story either. It's just very, very dependent on like local and regional factors. Yeah. Yeah, actually, I think that the distribution of the kelp and the kelp beds they will appear like as an emergence of many processes behind, and the kelp species have also like a like a life cycle that is quite complicated. So there are different stages: um, the gametophyte, the sporophyte, and they have different tolerance to temperature and other conditions. If we have to not look at the population, like the kelp bed itself, but we have also to think about at the level of individuals. So sometimes it's very difficult to just visualize uh, their performance or how the kelp bed will do in the future in climate change because we cannot keep aside like the grazing or other con- other factors that will also determine their presence. And so now uh, in our project in the Bruton, we're trying to look at these different and levels of biological organization from the individual to the population. Uh, so we'll also be looking at particular physiological performance of the bull kelp, uh, but doing measurements of growth, complement this with temperature, salinity, light availability, and nutrients availability. These interactions between many factors is difficult to, to be predicted in the future, but of course this uh, observations and monitoring will help to try to to get better predictions in the future. Well, I think all of you did a great job in explaining a very open-ended question. <laughs> so thank you for that. It's really interesting to hear about all of this local context, life stage, geographic location, currents, ocean temperatures, all of it. Now I kind of want to talk a little bit more about what maybe your day-to-day looks like. So first of all, can you tell me a little bit more about some of the lab work that you do and if you do any field work? My work is more related with uh, the work with the satellite images themselves and then uh, gathering and assembling the time series to see the trends and trying to figure out what will be the, the best uh, uh, statistical options to manage the data. So it's, it's pretty much a uh, desktop kind of job. Sadly, I wish I could go to field work, but uh, no, well, my my lab mates are more lucky than me. <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah, very lucky in that my day-to-day right now is quite varied, especially since I just wrapped up the first year of my master's. So the first year was uh, some courses that are quite seminar-based and focus on your own research, but ultimately still courses you have to show up to, very helpful things. Um, I also TA during the school year, so that takes up some of my day-to-day time. Otherwise, I also do a lot of the satellite imagery analysis. Right now, it's a lot of testing methods and to figure out what works for my region. And because we have so many collaborators, um, 
we also have a good bunch of meetings all the time. And、um, now we're doing more fieldwork prepping because field season is coming up soon in like a little more than a month. So, very excited for that. But now that's also a lot of figuring out、uh, fieldwork logistics, such as figuring out how to pilot an ROV, which is quite hard when you're not a gamer.、Um, <laughs> but for, for people who don't know, an ROV is a remotely operated vehicle, so kind of like an underwater robot drone thing that takes videos. So, yeah, trying to figure that out is <laughs> a bit hard. Yeah,、uh, yeah well, we had also, it's not field work, but we had a meeting with Bati Crew and Samukost, all the partners together. And it was、uh, really nice because we were with a bunch of maps and talking with the, the First Nation people, and they were like interpreting with, with us all the maps and the gradient of temperature and these kind of things. Uh, this was the starting point for planifying then just some part of the field work.、Um, in May, we already installed some buoy, like、um, mooring systems with CTD, like set,、uh, sensor for temperature, salinity, and conductivity, and also for light. So, we're going to have,、uh, well, we have installed eight moorings all around the Bruton area.、Um, we will have this information of the water conditions. Uh, through the water column. And the, fields, the next field season is starting in August, as Laura said, and we're going to be doing many kind of surveys, <laughs> like uh, uh, shoreland segment surveys, that is just we go with the boat and fix 15 meter segments of the coast and look at the presence, absence of kelp, and also some approximation of、uh, abundance, like qualitative data. Also, the, the drone surveys, yeah, drop quadrant surveys, that is, we have a structure with a, with a camera in the top.、Um, we drop this camera、um, to the substrate and we take a picture, and then we can analyze this to see the presence of sea urchins and what kind of substrate is on there, and also the presence of kelp for sure. Other things we are doing in the field is、uh, measuring the growth of kelp. We're measuring the growth of the, the wool of the wool kelp and also the blades. So we do kind of whole bunches, marks, and we came back again and we measure how much this whole、uh, moved、uh, away from the blade. <laughs> There's also the profiler, which is similar to the buoy that Romina talked about, but instead of being installed, we would just drop a CTD. With a light sensor to kind of get a depth profile of various environmental conditions like temperature, salinity, light、um, for all of our different sites in the Broughton.、Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like quite a lot, and it sounds like there's a full schedule that's going to be happening. <laughs> yeah, I just imagine this is a lot, a lot of process, and we are also collaborating with people from engineering. For developing an artificial intelligence、um, approach for identifying. Yeah. So we don't have to do it ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Yay> . <laughs> I can imagine that would be <laughs> quite a lot of work to do. So <laughs> hopefully that works out with your collaboration. <laughs> I hope so、yeah. too. <laughs> yes.、Yeah. Now I'm wondering what kind of obstacles you might face. Either while you're doing lab work and analyzing the images, or while you're doing field work, or just with your projects in general? 
Time management, <laughs> to, to do everything on time. <laughs> yeah, I think that is my main issue in this moment. <laughs> but yeah, because it took it took us a while to to get the, the data and then the analyzing and then writing the papers. Yeah, it's, I wish I could have more time, but now it's like we're running fast to get everything done. Yeah, that's it for for me. What about you? Yeah, I think time is uh, pretty much a universal obstacle. So I just want to <laughs> echo that and just figuring out which task I should prioritize and all those things. I think more on like a technical side of things, because the Broughton is full of so many small islands and some of the kelp beds are just so very small that um, you can't really see them on satellites or you need to figure out what you're seeing on that satellite is actually kelp. So just a lot of um, spectral confusion with that and figuring out like what works for the area and not trying to overemphasize the usefulness of satellites in certain areas because sometimes it just doesn't work and that's why. Yeah, well, yeah, as they say, the time is something very constraining <laughs> and also because uh, the different outputs of the project itself is just the like to bring these milestones to the first nations so something that is useful for them at the same time something that is useful for science in general because we are young researchers so we are constructed our <laughs> future so we need to publish in scientific journals too um, so yeah it's different kind of things. And in the field, uh, I don't know, I would like to be more close to the field work because sometimes like uh, people from Badi or from Samogos, they are doing the surveys, uh, collecting the data so we can process the data, this data later. And sometimes it's just, it's better when you are there, you can see and you can figure out what can be happening there. Yeah, these do sound like some challenges, but I'm sure you are up to the challenges. Yes. <laughs> and I know that everyone is cheering you on. It sounds like you have some great collaborations, some great partners, um, and I know that you're going to be doing the best for the kelp ecosystems. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. We're trying our best. <laughs> so I guess like as we're wrapping up, do you want to talk a little bit more in depth about some of your partners? Um, well, one of the partners is the Kelp Rescue Initiative. Kelp Rescue Initiative has different projects going on along all the Vancouver Island and working with different First Nations and trying to help the kelp to recover for sure. And I think that it's, it's really nice if you want to, to take a look at what they are doing. And there's the website and some uh, in the media you can find the Kelp Rescue Initiative. Um, it's a program that you, if you want to collaborate, it's open, the, the doors are open for you and for the public. That yeah, I think I also want to add that um, I think this collaboration is very nice in the sense that it's mostly led by the First Nations themselves. And I know a lot of academics and uh, researchers have not had like a good track record of working with the communities, such as not um, just doing the research and not giving them the results back, a very parachute science type of approach. So we're definitely still learning. This is very uh, early collaboration, but I think 
the fact that it's more so their project that they reach out to us with. Maybe that's how it should be done sometimes, I think. Not to toot our own horn, but and <laughs> I take no credit for this at all. I just came into the project, right? So I think um, thinking, just keeping in mind that the community partners or who we're doing it for is very important. Well, I, I am also uh, partnering or the, this uh, research of the uh, Southern Vancouver Island is uh, partially funded by the Pacific Salmon Foundation and part of the, their initiative for resilient coasts for salmon. So this information will also feed their uh, management approach and also the monitoring approaches. So to, to look at the, the drivers of change in salmon, um, in salmon ecosystems uh, during their lives when they are uh, in the open seas. So, uh, well, of, of course, it, from the open seas to the, the coastline. So um, I think it's, it's, it's very important to partner with uh, these local communities because it's, uh, it comes all together. It's, as as Lauren mentions, it's not parachuting science, no? It's not like getting to a place and trying to get some data and publish something. No, we're uh, making a science that is actually useful and and, and can be used in the, in the future. Excellent points. I completely agree with you. I mean, I like to think a lot of us try to remember that, but as you said, sometimes it does get lost. So always having that reminder in the back of our minds, like, yes, we are doing this for the communities. We're doing it so it can be useful is always a good reminder to have. Thank you for sharing those organizations, and we'll be sure to put the links to those in our episode description. I guess as a final parting question for you, what is something that you would like our listeners to walk away with after listening to this part of the episode? Yeah, well, I would like to say that when you are uh, next to the shore and you see those beautiful kelp forests from above, just try to get inside. It's a beautiful, beautiful, diverse, full of life. It's, it's dancing surrounding you. Uh, it has a, a, a mixture of different sounds and densities and energies. And it gathers so much forms of life that are there just living their lives, also dancing with the currents and the tides and the waves. It's beautiful. So I, I encourage the people living here in BC to get to know uh, the kelp forests if they have uh, some fins and masks to get inside the forests, enjoy their presence. It's, they're beautiful and they must be uh, preserved for the future and the future generations. Yeah, Ali, I think you put that really beautifully. I think, like, scientists and everybody can keep seeing how important kelp is and um, how it's threatened by climate change sometimes, but I think nothing really gets you to care until you experience it firsthand. Like, even from above, um, it's already quite majestic, but as you said, Ali, it's quite beautiful from underneath when you, you know, see the fronds dancing and the waves and all those things. It is cold, but, you know... <laughs> It just even for a couple of minutes, it will change your view. Yeah, probably I'll just complement with more um, research point of view. Like, um, I'll take away for me this research project is how uh, important is the collaboration between the different 
organizations like from academic to um, the people that lives there and has all this knowledge this knowledge for just living there and the ancestors like this knowledge that goes from one generation to the other and it's just anecdotic like for me I feel like this is it opened your mind a lot because uh, from I feel that I, sometimes we just live in a bubble, in, <laughs> in an academic or scientific bubble, and then we, when we have the opinion or um, the comments of the First Nation members, they just come from another different, very different point of view. It's really nice. It's a very nice takeaway to just uh, collaborate, and all people that is listen to this podcast can also uh, contribute or just know what's going on on the kelp uh, community and yeah and enjoy the kelp when they are swimming (laughs) (laughs) yeah thank you for sharing those wonderful takeaways and i hope everyone uh enjoys the kelp for the rest of the summer yes (laughs) (laughs) so thank you so much for being here i really appreciate it and wish you the best for your future research Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you for inviting us. Yes. Out Loud is supported by CFUV 101.9 FM at the University of Victoria and the Graduate School of Oceanography at the University of Rhode Island.